we return to our Bringing Light into Darkness outline interview of the types of terrorism Cuba has been subjected to from U.S. shores since 1959. And a, a sudden outbreak of, of a hemorrhagic, the terrible disease, dengue fever, affected over 350,000 people in Cuba in 1981. 158 people were killed, including 81 of them children, died from this terrible disease. And it was later discovered to be exactly the same strain of the disease which caused an outbreak in, in a totally different part of the world, New Guinea, in 1924. So obviously it had been uh, introduced and in 1984, Eduardo Aracino, who I just referred to, a counter-revolutionary of Cuban origin and head of the Omega-7, one of these terrible terrorist groups that we safely reside in Florida, he, this guy stands trial and in U.S. under oath accused, the U.S. accused of the murder of Felix Garcia Rodriguez was his charge, who was a Cuban diplomat to the U.N., and Aracino confessed under oath to having introduced, quote-unquote, germs into Cuba as part of the U.S. biological war against Cuba. Uh, I could go on with diseases that were introduced against their bees for honey, tobacco seedlings in 1991, uh, citric plants and rabbits and that type of thing were contaminated by other types of biological diseases. And most importantly, over 3,500 lives have been claimed and died in Cuba as a result of these types uh, of aggressions. So Cuba is very, very aware of terrorism, and Cuba was the first country to come to our aid when 9-11 occurred, offer airspace for planes to land and those types of things. On March 17, 1960, President Dwight Eisenhower, he approved the CIA plan a program of covert action against the Castro regime is what it was called. It included the, the development of a paramilitary force outside of Cuba for future guerrilla action. These goals were to be achieved in such a manner as to avoid the appearance of a U.S. intervention. So there you go. That's the language of this covert regime change uh, initiative by President Eisenhower. And the language explicitly reflects what we continue to do and have been doing since then and before till today, namely avoiding the appearance of U.S. intervention. Okay, so that ends that clip. I just wanted to share, Greg, a couple of things. This is really important that Dwight Eisenhower, he approved the CIA plan that's covert action against the Castro regime, and it included the development of paramilitary forces outside of Cuba for future guerrilla action, but these goals were to be achieved in such a way as to avoid the appearance of U.S. intervention, manipulate the American public's understanding of what's really going on, namely the overtly unrelenting aggressive military and economic undeclared war that the United States has been unleashing against Cuba continuously since 1959. If that history is left out, which it is, then the Cuban Missile Crisis appears to be an offensive gesture threatening the United States rather than a defensive measure trying to dissuade the United States from its ongoing policy of aggressions. In April 1960, this is how we started the first show. This is Jane Franklin indicated that this, the Assistant Secretary of State Lester Mallory sent a secret memo admitting that the majority of Cubans support Fidel Castro. So how can we be promoting democracy if we're acknowledging that the majority of the people support the system we're trying to overthrow? The language of the internal State Department memo is revealing of the real motivations of U.S. foreign policy towards Cuba to this day. It continues, quote, 
only foreseeable means of alienating internal support is through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship, concluding that, quote, every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba to bring about hunger, desperation, and the overthrow of the government. This is what we have done since 1960. It has never, I think, this terrorist profile that we just gave was the beginning of that. And so now here we are in 2021, and the questions become, why are there demonstrations in Cuba? If I'm understanding your initial a- absolutely. question. Absolutely, yeah, that, 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 was, that was the starting question. Because I had written down a note that the goal seems to have always been to create circumstances that would cause the people to rise up against Castro, his legacy, and his government. Destroy his image, then destroy his government. And yet, what are we objecting to? I would consider them, TJ pointed out, to be a post-revolutionary or a post-Castro era right now. Is that part of the problem? Are we trying to advance an image of that in what is going on right now in Cuba? Did our propaganda create an illusion of a homeland or death revolution becoming a cult of personality that is now, you know, gone? And there's a vacuum to fill. Yeah, well, Fidel Castro was an irreplaceable influence on the revolutionary trajectory of the Cuban model. And let me just go back to something that you introduced the show with. You talked about the firing squads following the revolutionary victory. And the people that were in front of firing squads... They were murderers. They were rapists that terrorized the Cuban population under Batista. 20,000 people died under the Batista regime. There were actually trials. There were not summary firing and killing of people. Family members and eyewitnesses of the 20,000 that had been murdered by the Batista regime presented their testimony to revolutionary tribunals. Arguably, many more would have been executed by hanging by angry Cubans if not for the tribunal process, which was under the jurisdiction of Che Guevara, who was tasked with ensuring revolutionary justice. And so I think there's another history that is closer to the truth than the one that we've been inculcated with. I think these are some of the things that build the image you have about Cuba, that that we automatically think that they just came to power, killed all these people indiscriminately. Just the impression they left on me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. And you're a part of the American public. But the other side of the coin is not presented. What I wanted to share was Carl Gershman. And this is a widely quoted, you know, this is a guy that in the 1980s became the leader of the newly created National Endowment for Democracy under the Reagan administration. And in a Washington Post interview many years later indicated a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. Okay, so the NED Mm -hmm. has spent millions and millions of dollars annually. Okay, and I know that you're aware of just Radio Marti and TV Marti. That's over a half billion dollars in just one attempt to propagandize Cuban people. That's mainly jammed, but this is different. These are quote unquote democracy promoting programs down there. And so, what we do is we have all of these monies that go down into creating and funneling into, into Cuba, trying to ignite and create protest okay and so you can imagine a country that's so hard hit economically 
how these millions of dollars annually can have the effect, like just in 2018 alone, the NED reported, this is their report from the CubaMoneyProject.com, 4.6 million in Cuba grants in 2018. That was a 22% uptick over 2017, which is 3.8 million. And this is under Donald Trump. And so these monies go into Cuba, grants to try to uh, promote uh, monies into rap organizations. With hopes of creating a counterculture to promote the overthrow of a government whose majority population supports that government. A textbook definition of the violation of sovereignty of another nation. Yet we call that promoting democracy. Cuba calls it subversion. Let me just share this with you real quick. This was back in 2014. The U.S. secretly created Cuban Twitter to stir unrest. That is the name of an explosive new article by the Associated Press detailing how the United States Agency for International Development, okay, that's with the State Department, created a fake Twitter program to undermine the Cuban government. The communications network was called Zunzinio, slang for a Cuban hummingbird's tweet. It was reportedly built with secret shell companies financed through foreign banks, according to AP, the United States planned to use the platform to spread political discontent that might trigger a Cuban spring, or as one U.S. aid document put it, quote-unquote, renegotiate the balance of power between the state and society. According to the AP, the document showed that the U.S. government planned to build a subscriber base through non-controversial content. In other words, build up a population first. Uh, news messages on soccer, on music, on hurricane. Before you put in the uh, the propaganda. Right, on hurricane updates. And this is all, Amy Goodman did a good piece on this back in uh, 2014. But later when the network reached critical mass of subscribers and operators, it would introduce the political content aimed at inspiring Cubans to organize smart mobs, mass gatherings called at a moment's notice that might trigger a Cuban spring. So, you know, we don't have time in this show to go through all of these different dynamics. There was a really brilliant piece that was put out by, by Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone that did a real good job on this whole history of these types of interventions, trying to hide the hand that's doing it type of thing. And that's what Eisenhower and that's what Lester Mallory said from the very beginning was to try to hide this. The real source of this unrelenting meddling campaign. The article was entitled Cuba's Cultural Counter-Revolution. U.S. government-backed rappers, artists gain fame as catalyst for current unrest by Max Blumenthal, July 25th, 2021 in the Gray Zone. So to your question... I think there are a lot of folks that did get and are touched by these monies. The last thing I just want to share on this point, and then I'll turn it back over to you, is that when I was in Cuba, I think it was my last time, or maybe it was a couple of times before the last time, I think 2013, so it wasn't the last time I was down there, but I had the opportunity to meet with two Cuban women who were double agents, okay? Double agent meaning their families believed they were counter-revolutionaries. But in fact, they were loyal to the Cuban intelligence and had infiltrated some of these counter-revolutionary groups, pretending to be one of them. That they were hang- hanging out at the U.S. interest section, 
okay? They were hanging out there, but they were actually a double agent. They were doing it in order to penetrate these types of programs, Greg. And they did. And they got videotapes. They got all sorts of documentary kind of evidence to show that back then, these quote-unquote dissidents were taking money from the U.S. government at the embassy. Can you imagine if somebody was doing the same thing in this country Taking yeah, money on, the from, of, on the streets of D.C. Yeah, uh, taking money from Russia uh, exactly. or, or whatever, you know, or China or whoever you fear the most. That's a crime in this country, and it's a crime there. Well, when they arrest these people, then they say, no, they're, they're arresting dissidents. Well, these are not dissidents. If you're taking money from a foreign country that is sworn from day one, 60 years ago, to overthrow your government, to make it the economy scream, make everybody get hungry and be desperate— and you're taking money from that country, that, I would suspect, is a capital crime in most countries. Anyhow, so I just wanted to share that personal... Well, uh, well I'm glad you did. In the State Department, uh, I was told that Radio Marti was not to be heard. It was mostly the uh, shortwave is very high power. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to generate it, mm-hmm. and it takes an equal amount of energy to jam it. And what the purpose was, was to blast from Montserrat, a uh, British uh, island, uh, Radio Marti, which is kind of ironic since he's a poet and patriot from the uh, 19th century Cuba. But the whole idea was to have money and energy, electrical energy, wasted in jamming these signals. Mm-hmm. And, it, uh, and that, again, was a cost to Cuban people because lights went out, uh, right. lights dimmed when we started blasting. From there, yeah, that's the whole policy. They, they never, they, there was no message in the radio program. They never anticipated going there. They just simply wanted to drain their pocketbook. And, and they and, knew they knew it was getting jammed. You're right. Cubans weren't listening to it. But but when you have an unrelenting war like the one we've des- described with that six minute clip of not just going after the sugarcane crop, but trying to destroy the pig population, the cows, the coffee crops, tobacco seedlings honey production, citrus plants, all this economic sabotage to be done in a way, quote-unquote, to be achieved in such a matter as to avoid the appearance of U.S. intervention, if we are to believe Eisenhower's words, of March 1960. It doesn't even include the long list of terrorist bombings in Cuba, the downing of the, of the airliner that killed 76 people back in, in the 1970s, the whole Cuban fencing team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the, the idea, again, is to, to, to take a toll on the population in the hopes that they will rise up against the government. Well, that, and also I think, Greg, when you are protecting the homeland, you know, you've heard of martial law. In some instances, that may be appropriate if you're under attack. If you create the kind of unrelenting terrorist activity and all of these sabotages and burning of uh, department stores, El Encontro and... Uh, and, and the blowing up of La Cubre, which was a freighter that brought arms in order to try to protect them from all this terrorism. And threats of invasion. When you do that, then the Cuban government is going to either respond by keeping things the same or they're going to intensify the types of things that we find invasive, right? And then when you, mm-hmm. and when you do that, then you're accused of not respecting freedoms to be left alone, <laughs> you know? Well, here we are creating an environment where you can't be left alone. It's a, it's a literal war environment. 
They have studied, Cuba has studied how Allende's government was overthrown and how other revolutions have been subverted and sabotaged by the West. They are historically astute looking and examining how other very progressive governments have failed to succeed. And being an island is also kind of an advantage that certainly uh, Chile didn't have under Allende Mm -hmm. and such. But so I guess what I'm just trying to get at is when you create the conditions in which more and more rights are going to be abrogated in order to protect the country from these types of invasive attacks, and then you have the gall to tell the American public, look how they're stopping people and checking their papers and all of that. Well, yeah, I mean, when you have that rate of... of And and history of interference. Right, exactly. So I think those are some of the things that are not well understood. Well, we've gotten to the bottom of my list of notes that I jotted down, and I have one last question for you. To me, and I think generally, relationships briefly normalized under Obama with the relaxation of... uh, tourist travel and things like that. Was that so? Was it good? Was it bad? Uh, was it indifferent? Uh, and I, I know it changed under the uh, past administration and, and has not yet returned. But mm-hmm. uh, what is your reflection on seemingly, I put in quotes, normalized circumstances under Obama? I think that's a little misunderstood. I think the normalizing of relations and this is something that Max Blumenthal talked about in his article, which I, I would suggest is a, a good read for people interested in a, in history and perspectives that are not made available. But anyhow, President Obama introduced his plan to normalize relations with Cuba just as United States Agency of International Development and NED deals were being ramped up in Cuba. But also, as a condition of diplomatic recognition, Obama insisted that Cuba expand its internet access. And this 3G internet network arrived in Cuba in 2018, and it enabled young Cubans to access social media on their phones. And now, instead of spinning out uh, social media platforms like Zunzinia, the U.S. intelligence focused on developing technology. There's a program called Siphon, P-S-I-P-H-O-N, so Cubans could access Facebook and YouTube despite internet blackouts. This is all well detailed in Max Blumenthal's article. But there was an, a really interesting take on that. And a friend of mine in Cuba, his mother, who was like 85 at the time, was very concerned about Obama. Didn't trust him and didn't feel it was above board type of deal. And this Venezuelan investigative website, Mission Verdad, warned something to the same tune. Quote, we are witnessing an update in the mechanisms, methods, and modes of intervention All the harmony at this time is totally illusory. What is already being placed under the label of quote-unquote normalization in the Cuban sociopolitical environment provides the minimum operating conditions to facilitate the idea of a Cuban spring, a test tube revolution. End quote. Okay. And so that's what his article really does a good job of going through. And, you know, we are running out of time, so... We don't have time to really get into all of the elements of it, but how these monies and and resources are getting to and are invested in Cuban civil society at an extraordinary rate when you look at the millions and millions of dollars each year. Mm -hmm. And he provides the breakdown. If you go to that website that I mentioned earlier, the Cuba Money Project dot com, 
but they break down those millions of dollars and there's like dozens and of different conduits all with the same purpose of promoting regime change of promoting the subversion of the existing cuban economic political model and its government you know 100,000 50,000 70,000 to get rapper you know that money is is predicated on what on being against the government and trying to promote a counter revolution a color revolution something we cried out as foul and alleged Russia was doing with our 2016 elections without ever providing substantive proof yet it is our standard foreign policy procedure throughout the world yet it is kept from the American public consciousness as it is achieved in such a way, or in the words of Eisenhower, in such a matter as to avoid the appearance of U.S. intervention. Again, in the internal government of another country, that breach of sovereignty is a, is a huge breach of, of international law. I don't want to end the show without acknowledging that there are huge challenges for the Cuban people. I think just if you understand the challenges themselves of trying to make ends meet and that type of thing, and the fact that you don't all you have is a few thousand people going to the streets. I think they're aware of what we're talking about today that most Americans are not aware of. And therefore, they're trying to make it work. But at some point, it's just a really difficult situation. You know, you can't go generation after generation after generation of having in incredible scarcities. I don't care where it's coming from. But let, let me be clear where it's coming from. It's coming from overwhelmingly this embargo that our major media such as NPR don't give proper coverage and consideration to. Thus the American public does not realize its poisonous potency. Even embargoes and keeps medical equipment to battle COVID. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I mean, that's yeah, the character, exactly. that's the char character of our nation, as Martin Luther King would say. Anyhow, sorry to talk over you. Yeah, so I, I think you answered that, that question, and uh, I think one that you can work on in the future is, I know uh, the current administration has been under a, a lot of problems, somewhat buried in problems of their own, but do you anticipate a return to that attempt to normalize relationships start under Obama in the Biden administration? Do you see that happening? No, that's a great ending point to discuss real quick. I am so disturbed at Biden. He has not reversed any of Trump's 400 or so, uh, or several hundred. I, I might be misspoke there. I'm not sure if it's there, There's quite a few. I'm, yeah, I yeah, the uh, of, the of the sanctions. You know, plus, as we said at the other show, you know, he accused Cuba, uh, their government, of pocketing, of enriching themselves. Those were his exact self words. Self-aggrandizement. Yeah. No, not, not self-aggrandizement. It's actually, yeah, that's what I said. But he said, enriching themselves. You, you make a you make a claim like that and don't show any evidence of that, and you are the president of the United States. That's where we've gotten in this world. Is that no media called him out on that? No one said, Mr. President, where is your evidence that Cuban government officials are enriching themselves? Yeah, I'll leave you with my sense of it. Sure. He and I are not that different in age, and and experience, uh, and, and I think he maybe does not carry the. Uh, the same uh, concept of Cuba or the same potential of Cuba that Obama may have. Uh, and, uh, you know, that to me, it, what, what you just uh, illustrated to me was a very bad sign and an indication that uh, he's still sitting there thinking they're communists and we got to fight them. Right, right. And I would just end the show 
with a real precaution, namely that I don't think Obama was off the script. I think he's been right on the same script as every president since 1959. He just changed the methods of how to do that. Okay, and that still is a violation of the dignity of the Cuban people and of the sovereignty of another nation. So that's what I think is pretty clear from the evidence of history. Certainly, the Cuban people would appreciate if things were back the way they were under Obama before Trump. That's a, that, that, that point's well taken, Greg. Well, I, I thank you for inviting me, and uh, I wanted to thank you for, as TJ did, for the uh, time. Uh, I know the decades uh, that you put in the subject and uh, what you shared over KOP. So, uh, you know, my hat's off to you, uh, Pedro, and to uh, bring light into darkness. Well, thank you so much, and and it can't happen without co-op radio. But we'll leave it right there. We're out of time. Thank you, Greg Ciotti, Undercover Greg, and we'll see you next week. Okay, take care, Pedro. Thanks so much. Okay, we'll see everybody next week. Stay tuned for some overnight music, but you'll have to switch on over to KOOP.org. But first, as we do at the end of every Bringing Light into Darkness show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. Check out the bozo. Oh,